Walter Balford, the T1 of Brass, I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance. His weekly Monday appearance is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And what it follows as he does every week, Dave Cameron analyzes all of baseball. Uh, in particular, in particular on the program this week, I asked Dave Cameron not only about the Twins' seemingly new offensive approach, which mostly involves not swinging, I asked him not only about that, but about other teams or perhaps players uh, which have so drastically or apparently so drastically uh, changed their approach in the middle of a season. We also discussed briefly uh, Major League Baseball's very quick decision. Uh, only 11 days after Dave Cameron had written an article about the futility of this particular role, their their quick decision, Major League Baseball's quick decision, uh, to repeal the transfer play rule. The transfer play rule, it's the rule where the guy takes the ball out of his glove and then it's a catch, and you know what I'm talking about. We discussed why that happened so quickly. That's why. Also, moving on, I I asked Dave Cameron about three players whose identities will remain secret uh, for the moment. Their identities remain secret for the moment. However, Dave Cameron describes one of them uh, in this fashion. Chris Sale 2.0. This Fangraphs Audio features managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Okay, so I want to say I'm I'm doing this uh, I'm recording this outside right now at a at a, a a friend's house that we have a married couple's house in Aix-en-Provence, which is in France. And then I was just sitting out on this balcony, and I swear two dingoes just <laughs> just ran through the driveway. And I don't think dingoes are native to France, but they're giant giant canines is all I can say. Uh, I thought you were referring to Eno. Yeah, no, that, yeah. Well, that's uh, <laughs> he's, you know, is his own species too. I would agree. That's, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> he's, I don't know if it's if it's a dingo. I don't know where it originates. It's some combination of what German, German and Jamaican. Uh, yeah, I think that, and then there's some other things mixed in there too. But. Yeah, right. <clears throat> and I don't know what a dingo is necessarily. Is a dingo a mixture of breeds? Pro- probably. I don't think it's an original species. Yeah. Well, anyway, I don't know what they were that just that just ran through this yard, but um, they were menacing. So, if you're in Provence, are you bu- currently buying a lot of herbs? Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's actually what we we spend the entire morning gathering herbs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what they sell, right? Herbs they in do. Provence. It's like a pretty popular thing. Herbs in Provence, yeah. And then you can also yeah. get uh, soap. Soap. You can get soap here. I mean, you can get soap most places in the world. <laughs> yeah, but right. They, yeah. I think they manufacture it here as well. Uh, okay. Um, and there's also a cheap liqueur from Marseille, which is not too far away, called uh, Pastis. And it's sort of like an anise drink, which basically like every country develops, but this is their version of it. Yeah, I, I got to say, anise, not my favorite thing. Yeah. I, I think, well, I think in terms of like beverage form, it's pretty cheap to make. But I don't know, like anise without alcohol in it, I can't imagine being great. Yeah, I mean, I think the whole anise family, including licorice, I'm just not a huge fan. Yeah, that's a good point. Have you ever tried like? Do you go? Do you go red and black, or do you? Uh, yeah, I, I dislike both. You dislike both. Yeah. No, I don't know if you know this. Well, you've lived on the East Coast and the West Coast, although maybe it's different in North Carolina. But I know that in the East, when I, you know, I grew up in the East Coast, and Twizzlers mm-hmm. were the more 
famous. But then when I moved, I think it was when I moved to Seattle and also to Montana, it was it was red vine country. Right. So I grew up uh, with my my mom actually really likes red licorice, and so we would get these giant tubs of red vines from Costco's and uh, or Costco, I guess, is yeah. the one. And uh, so I I thought those were like normal food, and then I had Twizzlers, and I was like, these are abhorrent. These are an offense to red vines. Uh, if you if you started on red vines, Twizzlers are a terrible sure. knockoff. And then I then I grew up and realized that both are terrible. <laughs> okay, that's good. Your palate matured. Yeah. Your palate matured. And have you tried any like a hippie licorice? Is it the same effect for you? Uh, it probably would be. I think I've been turned off from licorice. Yeah. There's a there's a um uh, what's it? Oh, I think it's these little panda treats. I don't know what they're. They're not actually made, they're not made of panda. I can guarantee you. Uh. That. Yeah, that that would be uh, maybe against some kind of regulation. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, let's do some baseballs. Uh, I have uh, some notes. I can't I can't say that they're particularly good. But uh, I want to start actually with your article with regard to the Twins' change in approach. Okay. Basic summary is that um, a, the Twins, a team um, that is uh, first of all an organization that is not necessarily known for patience or valuing right. patience. Right. That's tr- that's part one. And um, A or B or whatever, B, uh, an organization that maybe does not have the greatest offensive talent, although some interesting – I mean, obviously Joe Maurer is good, um, but uh, not necessarily a lot of high-end pieces offensively, seems to have uh, adopted a style that uh, is somewhat contrary to, them, to their style traditionally, but advantageous given the – the uh, offense they currently have, the offensive pieces. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about baseball is that if you're not a very good hitter, you should almost never swing. Or you should not swing far more often than you do swing. I think, uh, you know, people um, criticize guys like Joe Maurer and Joey Votto and some of these, like, sluggers for being too patient and taking too many pitches. But I think there's a decent amount of evidence that, like, pitchers, not that good at throwing strikes. Even major league pitchers, even really good ones, not that good at just throwing the ball over the heart of the plate when they need to. Uh, I think over the weekend, Felix Hernandez walked in a run with the bases loaded. Uh, there was a, a game last week where one team, it might have been the Blue Jays, walked in three runs with the bases loaded uh, and walked like eight guys in an inning, and that might have actually happened against the Twins now that I think of it. Um, I think if you're a if you're a mediocre or worse major league hitter, standing there and forcing the pitcher to throw you three strikes, not the worst strategy ever. Is there? Can you think of an instance? I mean, are there ballplayers who have uh, founded careers on this approach? Uh, I think you know a lot of these uh, light hitting utility infielder guys like Marco Scudero uh, doesn't swing very often, and he kind of has perfected this like slappy foul ball swings that even if you do throw him two strike. Uh, and then you challenge him, he can just foul it off until you miss it a bunch of times. Um, I think Luis Castillo uh, didn't swing a whole heck of a lot. Uh, it's usually like little slappy guys uh, who don't have any power, where the reward for swinging is very low anyway. And it seems like, I mean, with those guys that you mentioned, it seems like that um, a sort of complementary skill in this, um, in this case, one that could be quite helpful, is to have some sort of contact skill above and beyond being able to tell a ball from a strike. Right. This is actually like, I mean, if we were going to define the guy who should take this approach probably more than anyone in baseball, it would be Billy Hamilton. Uh, Because Billy Hamilton, his value of swings is very low. 
Uh, and even when he puts the ball in play, he hits the ball in the air too often. Uh, he's actually not that great of a bunter yet. Uh, I think if there's a guy who I would just tell, stop swinging. You know, maybe he should have a, a swing rate in the 20s, maybe, or in the very low 30s. Uh, that would be Billy Hamilton. But I think the Twins have, you know, not the same kind of speed guys, but they have some guys, like, who aren't great hitters. And uh, overall, I think they've done a, a pretty good job of uh, maximizing their offensive output by only swinging when they have to. Uh, you mentioned the, the idea of the uh, like Marco Scudero taking a foul type cut. Yeah. Is there is there any suggestion that um, being able to foul the ball off is a skill, or is it just like directly correlated to say like contact percentage in the zone? So I think one of the tough things is there's a different definition of fouling the ball off, right? So I actually uh, started looking at this not too long ago, maybe last week, after a discussion with Keith Law on Twitter. Uh, because his argument with, like, Billy Hamilton has a very high contact rate. His argument was that Hamilton's high contact rate is because he just fouls a lot of balls off because he's overmatched. If you look at it, Hamilton's con- uh, foul rate per swing is actually lower than league average, and the guys, uh, like him who are speed guys and slap hitters, they also have pretty low foul rates for swings. Uh, the guys who have high foul rates per swing are generally big pull hitters, the Mark Reynolds and the Adam Dunn, and uh, the guy, Chris Davis, has a very high foul rate. Um, I think what we're seeing in that instance is that the, their version of a foul ball is 350 feet down the line and it misses the foul pole, not the Billy Hamilton two-strike kind of slap foul, and we don't have a breakdown of what type of foul or where the fouls go. And so it's hard to say, okay, this guy really is good at fouling off the ball uh, versus this other guy who's, you know, pulling the ball into the seats because he just needs to straighten out a swing a little bit and it'll be a home run. Right. Oh, so that's interesting. So so maybe, like, the guys who, well, relative to the amount that they make contact, foul the ball off are guys who are 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 actually making good, or this is the, 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 the hypothesis, are actually making decent contact when they foul it, but it's not, but it's just, uh, they're, so they're actually pulling a foul in this case, probably. Yeah, that's what I would think. And I think that when we describe, you know, kind of a foul it off swing or like, you know, the, the two strike approach where you're just staying alive, uh, like Ichiro is very famous for this, of just taking these little slap swings just to foul a ball off and, and get more pitches to hit. That's a different kind of foul than, you know, trying to hit a home run and just hooking it foul by 20 feet. Yeah, and I, and I, uh, and this is totally anecdotal, but I, I remember growing up in the Boston area and it seemed as though Wade Boggs was famous for that ability too. Right, and it seems like it's probably a skill. I think we we do see the hitters take different swings with two strikes. Uh, they swing at certain pitches with with two strikes, and guys with back control seem to have some ability to, you know, not swing and miss. And it seems like they don't their in play rates aren't necessarily that much higher. Uh, so the difference probably is in ability to just foul pitches off if need be. Uh, but you know, without some kind of like recorded hit effects data on fouls, which even, you know, the current hit effects uh, system that we don't have access to doesn't record, uh, at least not that I know of because I don't have access to it, uh, it's hard to say this hitter uh, is fouling off balls that go 300 feet on average and this hitter is fouling off balls that go 20 feet on average. Uh, first of all, I want to say welcome to Liberty. Yes, she yeah. is, uh, she's awake. <laughs> Very good. Uh, okay, so we, back to with regard to the Twins, um, is there any... Uh, is it, have, have we seen or do you recall any changes like this from one season to the next? And do you have a, do you have an, an explanation for the Twins specifically 
Um, you, you, you sort of related some, some anecdotal evidence that there might be the case. And, and have we seen it, if there have been other teams, do, do you have a sense that there has been something definite that has, uh, or something very clearly that has motivated such a change? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things is usually when you see something like this, it comes with some kind of like regime change or organizational overhaul where, you know, the Houston Astros are now run by a bunch of nerds. And so they're going to, you know, put their own stamp on the team. And so you'd expect that there would be significant overhaul in, you know, their performance and the things that are valued. Um, I think those are the kinds of times when we see big shifts in philosophy and it's usually made public. Like the teams will say, okay, here are the things that we are going to do differently than what we, the predecessor did. And we're going to, you know, the Cubs, when Theo Epstein comes in, we're really going to value on base percentage and not necessarily that they're getting on base because their team is terrible, <laughs> but uh, they still value on base percentage, even if they can't do it. Um, I think with the twins, there's no organizational change. There was no off season uh pronouncements about this is how we're going to go forward and we're going to you know score a bunch of runs by not swinging i think those kinds of uh variables missing make you think that this is more likely to be a small sample size variance thing where this isn't necessarily an approach issue maybe the twins have just faced a bunch of uh mediocre pitchers as I noted in the article, they've seen an above-average strike rate, so it seems unlikely that this is a coincidence, but you never know. I mean, in a month, anything can happen. Um, it is possible that all these guys are going to revert back to career means and just start hacking away once again. Uh, but, you know, I think if you're a decent hitting coach uh, and you look at a lineup that includes, you know, Chris Colabello and Jason Kubel and uh, Trevor Pluff and Yosmil Pinto, uh, it's probably not a terrible idea to determine, hey, if we swing less and get into more advantageous counts, we might be able to score runs. If we swing a lot, we're probably not good enough to make that work. You know, I, I wonder if, I mean, in one in one uh, hypothetical scenario in my head, uh, a bunch of guys on the team were like, hey, let's, uh, why don't I, why don't I try to be more like Joe Maurer? Because right. Joe Maurer is clearly one of the best hitters in baseball and has been for what better part of a decade, probably. Uh, and so they say, well, what is something that Joe Maurer does? Or maybe they ask Joe Maurer, Joe Maurer, what do you do? And Joe Maurer says, I only swing at balls I know I can hit. Right. Um, and then the rest of them I just leave alone, and that's fine. Uh, I, I, do you, I mean, do you think, I'm not saying, do you think that it specifically is the case, but is there, can you think of, if not necessarily a, a regime change or even even a change in hitting coach, if there have been instances you could think of where, where a teammates a teammate or teammates have been influenced by one of, uh, you know, one of their their colleagues. Yeah, I actually can't. I don't. I don't. I mean, I can't think of one example where a guy uh, said, "You know, I was a unrepentant hack who swung at everything, and then I got put on the same team as this, you know, uh, patient takes everything guy, and now I've changed my ways and I've reformed." Uh, like, I think uh, maybe the closest thing we can think of is like Sammy Sosa back in the. Uh, late 90s when he was a, you know, super high strikeout, aggressive guy, and he turned into a high walk guy. At the same time, he also gained like 600 pounds and started hitting home runs. So, um, you know, I think trying to find a guy who just became patient, uh, without a drastic change in his skill set is, is difficult. They're, they're not that common. Yeah. I, I, I feel like I, I've heard it before. Like if a guy is trying to, like he's trying to learn a change up. And yeah. maybe maybe a teammate shows him a changeup grip, and it sort of creates like a, an epiphany for for the first guy. 
on the pitching side, this happens a decent amount where guys say, okay, you know, I was working out with so-and-so and this guy taught me a cutter or, you know, on the, on the pitching side, I think the teammates do show each other, uh, new pitches and new grips. And I think that happens pretty frequently. Uh, on the hitting side, I hear it less. And is that because do you think like, it seems like there are aspects of hitting which are sort of have a lot more to do just the wiring of the brain and the, and like in its relationship to the body, whereas pitching you are the one who's sort of offering and there's maybe more, in that sense there's more of, I don't want to say, it's not necessarily a craft, but it's something over which you can exert more control as a pitcher, whereas, the, you know, like it, it the, the way a guy hits is almost, it, it's a, sort of part and parcel with his identity. Yeah, I think uh, it's much easier to change the way you're holding the ball on the mound than it is to change your entire idea of your approach at the plate. And I think there's probably some vision slash, you know, hand-eye coordination uh, inherent in guys who like Joe Maurer or Joey Votto or whoever who uh, are really good at controlling the strike zone. It's not just a decision. I mean, it is a decision. But it's not solely a decision where you could take Delman Young and tell him, just do what Joey Votto does and he would be fine. I think like Delman Young probably has some kind of deficiency in recognizing pitches coming out of his hand uh, relative to a guy like Joe Maurer that will never be equal. Okay. All right. Uh, well, that's great stuff. Um, uh, with regard to uh, another piece uh, you wrote last week, and uh, this, was, this was not really uh, – this was more of an addendum to a piece you had written earlier and uh, which we addressed uh, at some length uh, on a previous edition of the, the, the podcast, was uh, the rule, the transfer rule, or the yeah. lack of transfer rule, is has been uh, changed or killed. killed. Yeah. And so the they, rule essentially just reverts to how it was and say, okay, umpires, now you're making some judgment. Uh, I mean, basically now what we're saying is when a ball goes in the glove and the fielder has the ball in his glove, from that point it's a catch and it doesn't matter what he does after that, which is the definition of a catch for a hundred years uh, since they started using gloves and uh, should always be the definition of a catch in baseball. And, but, but it just, but it wasn't for maybe three weeks of the yeah, 2014 for, baseball season. For three weeks, they changed the definition of a catch for, I mean, you know, maybe a slightly uh, valid reason, but with unintended consequences. And uh, it was a disaster. Well, the original intent, right? The, the positive part of it was uh, an, an attempt. It was a, it was an attempt to maybe take some pressure off of umpires, uh, so that they so they you know would not have fingers pointed at them quite as much in instances where uh, that transfer did go awry for an infielder in particular, and then a judgment call would have to be made in that case. Yeah, I think it was essentially stemmed from the new replay around uh, the, the second base bag on transfers where a player was going for a double play, and they didn't want every single dropped ball double play opportunity to be reviewed. Because um, there's a decent amount of those every season where a guy goes to, you know, uh, steps foot on the bag, goes to throw it to first base, and, and the ball comes out of his hand as he's trying to throw it, or he realizes he's not going to have time, so he just eats it and puts it in the ground. Um, I, you know, I think the emphasis was to remove the reviewability from those, uh, which is a noble intent, uh, but at the cost of having outfielders and base runners not know what it catches anymore and and uh, applying it from the second base bag to the rest of the field was a was a total disaster you had noted previously that uh, major league baseball is uh, historically slow to make changes yeah. and uh, for that reason you thought we'd have to sort of endure all of the 2014 season uh, with this rule still in effect and yet 
the rule is is uh, repealed 11 days after. Well, I don't know. After you made that comment, I guess, or something like or after that. After yeah, after the post went up. Yeah, 11 days from. Uh, I mean, it's not that I was the first person to point this out, or right. the only person to point this out, but yeah, within the span of maybe two weeks from when it became obvious that this was not a good rule, MLB had repealed it, which is kind of amazing. And do you do you have a sense of what uh, sort of might compel them to act as quickly as they did, especially you know in the context of their the uh, speed with which they tend to make decisions? I think the Players Association had a pretty big factor in this because the players themselves were saying that this was going to have to completely change the way they play the game. Uh, and 20 years of instincts were going to have to be unlearned. Uh, and I think everybody recognized that this rule wasn't going to stick around. So they were going to have to unlearn it for one season and, and then go back to, you know, how they played baseball their entire lives uh, next year, which didn't make any sense. And so I think the Players Association... Uh, expressed the concern of the players for the league and said, you know, there's no reason we need to wait on this. Let's let the guys play the game the way they've always played it. Let's go let baseball go back to being baseball. And, you know, there was no logical reason to wait. And do we, do we have a sense of how the umpires felt about it? Uh, I would imagine the umpires didn't like this any more than anyone else. Uh, you know, I think they were asked to enforce the rule. It wasn't their rule. This was something they were told to call. So they were doing the best they could. But they had to know, like, uh, hey, this is an, a tenuous situation. Uh, it's confusing base runners. It's confusing the, the crowd. No one actually knows what a catch is anymore. Yeah. This is maybe not, not so good. Right. It, it, it took like absolutely the worst part of football and, yeah. uh, and made it a thing in yeah. baseball. It was like, let's adopt the thing everyone hates in other sports. <laughs> Um, right. Well, that's gone. Uh, listen, some uh, some other observations. I have, there's at least uh, three players I want to ask about, and uh, they might relate to what other players are doing too. Uh, the first uh, the first guy I want to ask you about is Justin Upton. He's an outfielder for the Atlanta Braves. He is. Yeah, uh, and he's ha- he's had a torrid start to the beginning of the 2014 season, Dave Campbell. This is becoming an April thing for him. Well, that's what I was going to ask about. Uh, yeah. He also had a torrid start to the beginning of the 2013 season. Uh, he looked invincible at times during that that April, and then uh, he looked more vincible uh, during <laughs> uh, during the rest of the season. I, I don't think he ended up with with uh, terrible numbers overall, but uh, probably less less impressive than one would have assumed given uh, given the, the first month. Uh, yeah. Is there any is there any reason to think that what Justin Upton is doing now is uh, somehow different from last year? Uh, there's I'm guessing that there's very little evidence to suggest that players are are definitely going to be good in one month or another. Um, so I, what's going on with Justin Upton, I guess, is the most basic dumb way to ask my question. Yeah, I think the thing is with uh, high strikeout power hitters, they're going to have some months where they're amazing and some months where they're terrible because their production basically uh, is tied to a small number of events. So when Justin Upton hits home runs, he's awesome. And when Justin Upton does not hit home runs, he's terrible. And this is true of guys, uh, like Mark Reynolds and this kind of ilk of like 30% plus strikeout guys, <coughs> excuse me, who, uh, who have a lot of power. If they run into six or seven or eight home runs in a month, their numbers are going to be great because those hits are going to 
drive all the rest of their numbers up. And with any kind of reasonable batting average on balls in play, they're going to have a decent overall or good batting line just based on those six, seven, eight home runs. In months where they don't hit any home runs, where they hit one or two or something, uh, the lack of power is not going to be offset by enough contact uh, for him to be a valuable player. So it's kind of like on the defensive side of things, where uh, we're always telling people you want larger sample sizes of defensive metrics because there are so few plays per year that just a few plays going one way or another can shift the metrics. And, uh, you know, if you're dealing with a handful of 40 or 50 plays per year that are, uh, you're getting judged on, uh, it doesn't take that much to kind of move the needle. The same is true in any given month for guys like Upton, is that, you know, if, if there's, say, 20 potential home run balls that he can hit, uh, or 15, whatever, I don't remember pitches down the middle that he gets that are uh, possible home runs, when he hits eight, versus one, it's going to have a substantial change on his numbers. Um, and I think, you know, that's just part of the life of having a player like this. Now, when you talk about uh, so so few plays for a defensive player, is that sort of like that set of plays that are something that are between impossible, which we assume no one can get except maybe uh, Angelton Simmons, and then there's another set of plays that are sort of uh, very obviously going to be, you know, easy outs. You're talking right. about we're, we're like essentially every defender is judged on those whatever that you know ten or <coughs> twenty or thirty you know maybe thirty percent of plays in the middle there. Yeah, I think it's probably even less than thirty percent. I mean, I think we're probably looking at um, maybe fifteen percent of plays, fifteen percent of opportunities at a position are kind of close enough to where one player will get to them and another player will not. Uh, I mean, there are some that like. A player can make a spectacular catch on, um, and it's theoretically possible to get to. But if you're looking at the plays that are kind of a, a band of the normal talent distribution of major league fielders at that position, you're probably looking at something like 10 to 15 percent of all plays uh, hit in their direction, and that's what they're getting judged on. Is you know, did you make how many of these you know 10 to 15 percent did you make? Uh, and that's where your defensive metric comes from, and and it certainly. With that small of a sample of, you know, I think like the, the number is generally around 40 or 50 plays per position. Uh, with that small of a sample per year, it's no, no wonder we see some fluctuation because we're dealing with uh, uh, a much smaller sample than we are with plate appearances or innings pitched or whatever for batters or fielders or for pitchers. Right. Uh, now, Dave Cameron, um, how, how much is Jose Abreu being paid this year? Uh, $11 million, I believe. $11 million. Uh, so if we go with what, uh, just a rough, rough estimate of $6 million per win. Yeah. Uh, he's made about $6 million, or he's been worth about $6 million this year. And not so bad for the first month of the season. No, that's not bad at all. And, uh, he's doing it, uh, one way he's doing it is by leading all of the majors in home runs. Yeah. This is, it's almost silly at this point, the degree to which, or the, 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 the ease it seems with which, at least the best Cuban players are are uh, converting, or you know, the, the way they are transitioning to Major League Baseball. Yeah, I think uh, there may have been an overreaction to the failures of uh, the mid '90s hitters that came out of Cuba. I mean, there were a few of them that were pretty significantly hyped that didn't do anything. Where teams spent a decent amount of money, and you know, they languished in the minor leagues for years. I think the uh, the Rays had a first baseman uh, whose name escapes me, who I think they spent you know some some money on. I know the Yankees had a guy who they spent you know a, a good chunk of change on and never even got to the big leagues. Uh, and these guys, you know, were basically considered uh, evidence that Cubans couldn't hit. 
uh, or the guys in Cuba, their their offensive numbers were dramatically inflated. And I think we we saw a little bit of the same kind of I don't know, but if you want to think like categorization, but you know the same thought was put on Japanese players before Ichiro came over. It was oh, well, you get pitchers from that league, but you you don't want to get hitters from that league. Uh, and I think now we're in a run where uh, you know with Puig and Cespedes and, and Abreu and uh, you know a decent amount of second basemen who've come over and been pretty good. Um, you know, I think Alex Guerrero can't play defense, but he's showing in the PCL that, you know, he might not be a terrible investment for the Dodgers, even though they're paying him $7 million to play in AAA. Yeah, that's what, well, isn't like last check Alex Guerrero had like five times as many home runs as he did walks or something like this? Uh, or no, no, two, he had, no, he had, I think he has, uh, he, anyways, he'd been playing very well. That's the good point. That's yeah, I think point. he's, he's not making, he's not, he's not swinging and missing and he's hitting for power. Right. Which, you know, good combination for a middle infielder. Yeah. Um, but I do think that, you know, the Jose Abreu contract was a pretty significant value for the White Sox. And I was pretty surprised, uh, after talking to people who saw Abreu and, and, uh, scouted him and said, you know, we really like this guy and think he's going to be an above average first baseman. We're not sold on him, but we think he's going to be a good player in the prime of his career. But he only went for 60 to $8 million, which, you know, maybe sounds like a lot of money. But if you look at like what right-handed power is getting in baseball right now, even as a bat-only guy who's not going to be a good runner and there were some questions about how how much average he was going to hit for, uh, power is an expensive thing to acquire. And for an in-his-prime uh, guy who everyone was pretty sure had a lot of power, uh, the White Sox did a good job getting a steal. Well, but I, I guess, uh, I mean, there's a difference in terms of length of commitment, but what is the what is the Michael Morse contract right now? Uh, $6 million, I believe. Just For just one year? Or five million, something like that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's uh, with the similar, well, not not similar at all. And and also Michael I mean, Morse isn't. Mike, yeah, Michael Morse is like thirty three and coming off a lot of injuries. And uh, I mean, I think you know you could argue that the power is similar, uh, except for the fact that Michael Morse has been suspended twice for using PEDs. So who knows what the power actually is? Yeah, Michael Morse was also coming to mind because he has uh, he has currently let's see after about eighty plate appearances, he has recorded. The exact line, or maybe even offensively, might even be better than one might suppose. But it is such a Mike Morris line. He he has a six percent walk rate. Yep. Uh, he's among the league leaders in home runs with six and eighty-three plate appearances, and yet his uh, his defense has been so miserable on top of it that he has produced zero wins, zero point yeah, zero he, wins. It's really shocking that people are still putting him in the outfield. I mean, he is so bad at defense in the outfield that. It would be like putting uh, Matt Weeders at shortstop or something. And you'd be like, oh, let's just try it out. And then you'd be like, no, God, no, don't do that. <laughs> uh, and then teams keep doing it. Um, okay, and uh, uh, the last last guy I wanted to ask you about was uh, Alex Wood. Alex Wood yeah. uh, was the subject, was, I guess, half the subject of a piece written by uh, Jeff Sullivan last week uh, regarding – in. Uh, it appears to be the case that this this um, game uh, last week between Atlanta and Miami, which featured Alex Wood and Jose Fernandez, might actually be one of the best pitchers duels uh, of the gener—I don't know—the generation, certainly the year. Yeah, um, uh, it, it was a strikeout fest. Right, and they also threw a lot of strike. I mean, they threw strikes when they weren't just throwing uh, when they weren't getting strikeouts. They were getting two zero oh, and two counts basically all the time, and then finishing yeah. it off. Yeah, it was two pitchers just completely dominating the opponent. Right. And yeah. now, uh, 
Jose Fernandez, I think that even just the year plus he's throwing now, I think uh, it's not surprising for people to see that sort of performance out of him. Alex Wood, it's, you know, I'm guessing considerably more surprising because he was not really considered a prospect, I guess. Uh, I don't know that he appeared on, on uh, you know, Mark Hewlett's top 100 list. I don't know that he appeared uh, on Baseball America's top 100 list. And yet, at this point at least, you know, I think we could say it looks pretty good for the year 2014. He looks like, you know, he's in the top 10, what, top 20%, top 10% of starters. Yeah, I, I think with him, the issue is always going to be the arm action. Is this is a uh, delivery that scouts hate. And uh, even with a good performance, it was going to be and will probably continue to be easy for them to predict that he will break down as a starter and he belongs in the bullpen. I mean, this is kind of the classic uh, arms and legs, Dontrell Willis-style um, delivery where you look at it and be like, that can't work for 200 innings. And it hasn't worked for 200 innings yet. I mean, we haven't seen Alex Wood pitch a full Major League season. So I think until he goes and proves that he's, you know, Chris Sale 2.0, and Chris Sale should be pointed out is currently on the disabled list with a uh, sore elbow, uh, until Alex Wood proves that this delivery can work for him over a long period of time, there's going to be skeptics because it's not a traditional delivery. It's not... Uh, clean mechanics, as they would say, it looks like it's going to lead to injuries, um, or at least it's going to lead to a career in the bullpen where his pitch counts can be effectively managed. Uh, so I think the question with Wood isn't necessarily performance, although this performance is better than anyone would have expected. Uh, it's durability and long-term durability. And I think with any pitcher who has a kind of a funky uh, arm angle or uh, this kind of... Uh, these kinds of mechanics, the question is always going to be how long will they last? Yeah. Actually, I was just thinking to that point, I was thinking, whoa, what would uh, what would he look like in the bullpen if he's putting up such great numbers? And I was thinking he might look like Johnny Venters. And I, then I asked, wanted to ask the question, where is Johnny Venters? He's rehabbing. Oh, okay. Because he didn't last either. Because Johnny Venters, for at least one year, was, was absolute, crazy. absolutely crazy. Because I think crazy. he had... Massive strikeout numbers and also just huge ground ball numbers too. It was like forty uh, percent strikeouts and seventy percent ground balls. <laughs> right, and, and I think it was because he got a lot of his strikeouts with the same pitch, didn't he? Did yeah. that, like a crazy like two seam or sinker. Yeah, he basically threw really hard at the bottom of the zone, and all you could ever do was swing and miss or hit it into the ground. Yeah, but he appears not to have pitched since twenty twelve. Yeah, that's right. He blew. He blew out. Yeah, as pitchers do. Yeah, that happens to pitchers. Yeah. Yeah. It does. Hey, uh, Char- Charlie Blackman, huh? Charlie Blackman. This has been a good year for guys you kind of have, uh, overlooked or neglected. Uh, your your former love interests are having a rebound. Yeah. Well, we'll see how ha- we'll see what happens with Colby Lewis, who is uh, yeah. who is pitching again. Right. Yeah. I think uh, it's the the a few of your your old guys are are back and on the prowl. I think the interesting thing with Charlie Blackman is the Rockies have uh, platooned him uh, basically exclusively since opening day, except for the fact that he's always hit lefties better than righties in the major leagues, and they're platooning him with a guy who's not hitting at all. Uh, so they're taking a guy who's hitting 400 with power and not striking out and putting him on the bench for Drew Stubbs, who has a long history of not hitting, even though I think Drew Stubbs is a pretty good defensive outfielder and not a totally useful, useless player. But uh, I think at some point, and I think they did start against lefty yesterday, uh, Charlie Blackman probably deserves an everyday job to just to see what he can do uh, before they say, you know, you're a platoon guy for the rest of your life. Yeah. Well, he's getting a – I mean, he hasn't really got a lot of chance to see what he can do generally even against right-handers. I mean, between yeah. injury and what else. 
Right, but I mean, I think, you know, they committed to him as their leadoff guy and uh, their starting center fielder, uh, and he's, you know, been the best player in baseball to this extent. You don't usually see guys hitting 400 getting platooned. Like, the managers really love the hot hand, and this is an unusual commitment to a platoon to have one guy hitting 400, the other guy hitting 200, and you stick with it. Right. You know, it, it's it, it's somewhat funny, too, because uh, Corey Dickerson, in limited time, Pretty good. It has also been quite good. It's it's yeah. a real uh, it's a good problem, I guess, that they have in Colorado. Yeah, except for Carlos Gonzalez has been terrible. When Carlos Gonzalez is your worst outfielder, uh, that's I guess a good problem to have. But uh, you know, I think it's probably difficult to say. Well, Dickerson's been good and Gonzalez has been bad, so let's play Dickerson because Carlos Gonzalez is uh, you know pretty good. Yeah. All right. All right. Wait. Well, you've uh, fulfilled your commitment this week, Dave Cameron. Well, good. I feel good about that. <laughs> okay. Good. All right. Uh, well, let's say goodbye to you then. Thank you for contributing. You're welcome. All right, but stick around for a second. That's Dave Karen, managing editor of Fangraphs. Always, ha- always happy to be on the show. And yeah. uh, <laughs> I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.